One day as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, these men are slaves to the most high God who proclaim you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I'll order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They're Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds, and he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house, set food before them, and he and the entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Change disrupts us. Change disrupts our habits. It disconnects us with nostalgia and history. And we're Methodist. We don't like change. Change is inconvenient and disruptive. Democracy disrupted the monarchy. The automobile disrupted horse breeders. The computer, the computer put typewriter companies out of business. Email, email disrupted the United States Postal Service and caused a lot of envelope companies to go out of business. Do you remember stereos? Do you remember reel-to-reel tape recorders and players? Do you remember VCRs and cassette tapes? All disruptive, all disappeared as it were. 
We can go on and on when new businesses and industries pop up, they disrupt the old order, and sometimes the old order will adapt. Sometimes it just disappears. But today, the disruption continues. Social media is disrupting society. We have all kinds of devices that we wear on our wrist or carry around in our pockets to set the agenda and the tone for our day, they can change the course of our day just by going off. We are dealing with sensors and cloud infrastructure, data and business intelligence tools, AI, robotics, nanomaterials, biotech, bioinformatics, quantum computing, the internet of things. Things are changing and disrupting. It's not just limited to culture and society. Moses is taking care of his father-in-law's sheep in the fields of Midian. And he sees this sagebrush burning, but the bush is not consumed. So he turns aside to see this great sight, and a voice from the bush says, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. Take your shoes off and come here, Bubba. And Moses walks toward the burning bush and he hears the call to go down to Egypt because God's seen the pain of his Hebrew friends and wants to set them free. Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. They go up to a high mountain and scripture tells us and Jesus is transfigured. The Greek word is he's metamorphosed. It is metamorphosis. His face shines white, his clothing is whiter. And a voice from the cloud says, this is my son, listen to him. And suddenly their perspective of Jesus is disrupted. He's no longer this rabbi friend of theirs. He's something holy and majestic. Or what about the women who go to the tomb on the first Easter? They're looking for a body to anoint, to prepare for burial. They see the stone is rolled back. They see a couple of angel dudes hanging around, and the angel says, why are you seeking living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Go and tell his friends. Easter disrupted the whole death and grave modality. And the disruption continues to this day. Here you are, worshiping a living Christ. The 16th chapter of the book of Acts appears as though it's just a nice story. But I want to suggest there are four disruptions found in this passage that as we learn to live out, as we learn to get comfortable with, as we learn to incorporate these disruptions into our faith as Christians, they change the way we perceive the world and they change the way we interact with the world. Paul and Silas are going up to the place of prayer and they meet a slave girl who has the spirit of divination. The Greek says she has the spirit of a python. The python was the symbol of the serpent that guarded the entrance to the oracles at Delphi. She has a spirit that allows her to predict the future. And in Greek and Roman culture, these 
oracles are very important and they could be very lucrative to own one. So she starts following Paul and us. And if you wonder who the us is, it's Luke. She starts following Paul and Luke and Silas, and she kept crying out. And finally, we know that Paul has a bad attitude because Scripture tells us, but Paul, very much annoyed. That's how I view the Apostle Paul. He's very much annoyed a lot of times. He just turns to her and says to the Spirit, I order you to come out, come out of her in the name of Jesus. Spirit departs. And the people who own the slave girl realize she's no longer useful to them. They're not going to make any more money off of her. So they drag Paul and Silas and we suppose Luke in front of the magistrates. The magistrate says, let's strip them and beat them. They do that. Then they throw them in prison. And it's in prison where the disruption starts because it's in prison that the earthquake happens. So about midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was an earthquake. Disruption number one. Disruption number one. You are valued for who you are, not what you do. You are valued for who you are, not what you do. How do we introduce ourselves to strangers on the airplane when you have to talk to them? You share your name. Hi, I'm Doug. I'm Bubba. Hi, Bubba, what do you do? And the proper response back is, hi, Doug, what do you do? And you answer, right? Because we define ourselves two ways, by our name and what we do. And there was a point back in the 1980s, I wouldn't tell anybody what I did. I'd tell them I worked for J.C. and the boys. They say, oh, J.C. Penny, right. It was an embarrassing time back in the 80s to work with, as say you were a minister. You are not valued for what you do, you're valued for who you are. The Philippian jailer feels the earthquake. He knows that the doors are open. He's done one thing that's got going to get him in a lot of trouble with the Romans. He's fallen asleep on guard. And now he sees that the prison is probably empty. So he knows that his prison management career is over. He knows that his career as an official in the Roman Empire is over. He can't conceive of how to live without his career. And Paul says, hang on out there. We're all in here. We judge ourselves too often by what we do, by our career path or the subject we're studying, or what we have accomplished in life. But in the name of Jesus Christ, you're a child of God. You're a son or daughter of the King. You are a joint heir with Christ. It can't get any better than a joint heir with Christ. That means that whatever God has given Jesus, God is going to give you a joint heir with Christ. You're going to share in the resurrection. You're going to share in his glorification. You're going to share in eternal life because you are valuable. You are valuable. Remember that the next time you're looking in the mirror trying to condemn yourself, you're valuable because you are a child of the king. Disruption number two, you are saved through faith, not by the God of success, the God of beauty, the God of popularity, or the God of power. So 
Paul and Silas yell out to the jailer, don't, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer brings them outside and says to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And we built a whole evangelical movement on that sentence, what must I do to be saved? The problem is there's another way to translate it. The Greek word that Luke uses for salvation is the Greek verb sozo. And sozo means to be made whole, to be made well, to be recovered, to have things set right. So what I want to suggest to you is that the jailer was not asking a religious question. Here's what he said. Sirs, what can I do to fix this mess? My jail is destroyed. All my prisoners are running around inside. The doors have been opened. What can I do to fix this mess? And that's more the question we come to God with. God, I need help with the mess. Either the mess I've made or the mess that has been foisted upon me or just the mess that is life itself. Lord, what can I do with this mess? Now that's where the answer becomes even better. You want to fix your mess? Jesus. You want to fix the mess you've made of life? Jesus. You want to fix the mess that has been caused by something somebody else has done to you? Jesus. You want to fix the mess that is circumstance? Jesus. He is the answer to the mess. He is the one that brings salvation. He is the one that brings grace. He is the one that offers the forgiveness of our sins, a second chance through his love and mercy. The answer is Jesus. As a matter of fact, the answer to most of life's tough questions is Jesus. It's not how many followers you have on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. It's not the latest beauty secrets or other things you read wherever you read the things you read. It's not the gods of culture. It's Jesus. Philippian jailer, you can fix this mess by Jesus. As a matter of fact, you and your whole household can give up all these Roman gods and goddesses you have, and you can fix everything simply by Jesus. Disruption number three. Faith is never entirely personal let me say it this way. Faith is never entirely individual. It always leads us to others. So the Philippian jailer is so impressed by the words of Paul and Silas, he gets his family together and he lets his family hear the gospel proclaimed and he has his family baptized and they set up this feast afterwards. He wants to be in community he wants to do something for somebody else. The very first act he did is to wash the wounds of Paul and Silas. Where did he get those wounds? The public flogging they had endured. Christ transformed your heart and your life. And Christ helps you see another person 
Not valued for what they do, but valued because of who they are. And you feel this desire to have that other person experience the love and grace you have experienced. You want to be in community. You want to be participating in communal action that makes a difference in people's lives. The other thing that went on that is such community and communal in nature is the Philippian jailer started practicing hospitality. His heart is transformed. The very first thing he says is, y'all come down to my house. I got some gumbo in the pot and I've got some cornbread. Am I trying to rush it? Can we do gumbo and cornbread tonight? Will it be cool enough? Come experience Christian hospitality. So you're valued for who you are, not what you do. You're valued, you're, you're saved through faith in Christ, not the gods of success or popularity or beauty or power. Faith is never entirely individual or personal. It's always communal. And number four, this will rock your world if you can get a hold of it. Here's disruption number four that comes out of the text. The church is not somewhere you go. It's the way you live. The church is not somewhere you go. It's the way you live. And when you look at this, we have such a wonderful pattern right here in verses 25 through 34 picturing what the church is. The church is a worshiping community. What are Paul and Silas doing in the middle of their mess? They're praying. They are singing hymns. You and I are singing people. Before you believe it, you sang it. Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. Before you believe it, you sing it. And singing puts it in a deep part in your soul. And, and the gospel writers tell us that before Jesus goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's instituted the Last Supper before he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He did what? He and the disciples sang a song. We are singing people because we are a worshiping people and worship is a part of the church life. We are also a witnessing community. What do Paul and Silas do? They tell the Philippian jailer about Jesus. We do so many good things. We just, we feed hungry folks. We build ramps. We, uh, we uh, give furniture and do housewarmings for people. We just do so many good things and we're all in the midst of doing these good things and we do lots and lots of them. But I wonder, do we ever tell anybody about Jesus? Well, they should know because we're Christians and we did a good thing that we're here in Jesus' name. But do we ever tell people about Jesus? Now, Brother Doug, I'm, I'm uncomfortable talking about Jesus. You know why we're uncomfortable talking about Jesus out in the world? Because we're uncomfortable talking about Jesus in the church. If you can't talk about Jesus in the church, where can you talk about Jesus? Because here, home field advantage. You're talking to, about being a Jesus follower with other Jesus followers, so practice your Jesus talk. Hmm. They talked about Jesus. They witnessed. They worshiped. They witnessed. And then they did something that was so cool. 
The same hour of the night, the Philippian jailer took them, he washed their wounds, and he and his entire family were baptized without delay. The initiation rite of the church. Baptism is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace signifying to all the union that exists between Christ and his church, between this person now and Christ. They were baptized, verse 34, and he brought them into his house and set food before them. Baptism, communion. It's sitting right there. Baptism, the initiation right in the church, the one that says you belong to God, you're a part of the family of God. Communion, the sacrament that reminds us that God is with us all the time. Now, since I don't have a bishop, you can't turn me into him or her. I'm going to have a little fun. My thesis is we don't do communion the way the early church did communion. And I know we don't do communion the way they did it in 18th century Great Britain. We've made it something that you've got to come to church. And in a Methodist church, you've got to have a minister consecrate the elements. And if you eat unconsecrated elements for communion, somebody's going to get you. Here's what I want you to do today. We're from the South, so sometime today, there will be bread on your table. And if there is not bread on your table, I will take your Southern Union card away from you. So today at a meal, when there's bread on your table, I want you to take the bread and break the bread and eat the bread in remembrance that Christ died for you. Then after your meal, whether you're drinking water, whether you're drinking milk, whether you're drinking iced tea, or whether you actually have some wine at your table, I want you at the end of the meal to do what Jesus did and take one more sip in remembrance that his blood was shed for you. What did I just give you permission to do? Communion in your homes where it used to be done. Communion during a meal that reminds us that not only are we communing as children of God, as joint heirs with Christ, we are also communing with Christ himself. The Bible says you're a priest before God. I'm just telling you, go ahead. Go ahead on and you do that. Because these powerful symbols that we talk about as sacraments, they are vehicles for God's grace. And, and if you don't believe that, you should stand here with us and serve communion one Sunday and watch the people come and their faces as they are receiving the body and blood of Christ. Or hang around a baptism and watch the faces be changed as they are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is something about these powerful church sacraments of baptism and communion that remind us that the church isn't the place we go to. The church goes with us. And wherever we are,
Christ is with us. I was a doctoral candidate at the seminary and I had a full-time job. It was a great job for a doctoral candidate, by the way. I went to work at 10 p.m. and got off at 6 a.m., spent the rest of the morning in, in seminars and colloquies and all kinds of stuff like that. I worked as the night supervisor of the old Methodist Home Hospital in New Orleans, Washington Avenue, y'all. And um, we were a, an emergency facility and shelter for children who had been abused, abandoned, or neglected. And what would happen is that they would find themselves in the system because of something that had happened to them and a social worker would call and would ask, do you have space for the child? And once the child was with us, we did a lot of intense care with the child and some of them were reconciled with their parents. Some of them, you know, there was additional therapy that took place. Some of them ended up staying in that social service system for the rest of their lives. It was Mardi Gras, and I think the big parade in New Orleans that night was in Demian. And I'd gotten to work about 10, and about 11 o'clock, the phone rang, and it was a social worker. And she said, I have a three-year-old and the best we can figure out, his parents and he came from Mississippi and his parents abandoned him. I said, you mean he's lost? They said, no, he's been abandoned. I said, I think we have room, bring him on. So they brought him. What we did at the children's home, the very first thing when a social worker handed me the paperwork and I, I handed the, the child to one of the caregivers down on the floor, they gave the child a bath. You never know where those kids had been or what was crawling around in their hair. Gave them a bath, put them in nice warm pajamas. Baptism. And the next thing we did after they were in their nice warm pajamas, we fed them just a little bit, just enough that if they were hungry, they could have more, but that they, they would learn real quick that whatever had happened to them previously we were going to feed them and care for them. Communion. So this little boy had had his bath. We'd put him in his nice, fuzzy, warm pajamas, and he'd gotten his little meal. And they were walking him back into the room on the hallway, and I was standing there making sure that everything was done according to Hoyle. And that little boy who very well could have been an archangel, he was a beautiful little boy, he saw me and he just did this.
And I was thinking, whatever you've been through, little one, we've got you now. We're going to love you and we're going to take care of you and we're going to keep you secure. Whatever the stuff in your life has been, we're going to show you the love of Jesus. There are so many broken people in our world, fractured by disappointment, ruined by society. So many that feel abandoned. And you and I need to become the church for them. We need to offer them the cleansing power of baptism that comes in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we need to offer them the bread of life that comes through communion. You see, that's what's going on in Acts 16. You have a description of the church. It wasn't a place. It wasn't a time. It was how people lived. And what they were disrupting was sin and death in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And it's to that disruption you and I have been called. Would you stand and pray with me? We don't like it, oh God, when you disrupt our lives. We have our plans made. We have our calendars set. We know what we want to do. But we pray through all of it, we would experience your love and grace, that we would understand that the interruptions and the disruptions very often are for the sake of and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. To find out more about Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityreston.org.